Welcome to Buddhability, a weekly interview series about the amazing inner ability people have to change our lives and the world if we are brave enough to tap into it. And I also think of how it connects with the primary tenets of what we believe that the enlightenment happens here. It happens in the stuff. It happens in the stuff that we find confusing, conflicting, problematic. That's where it happens. of life reflecting on their own buddhability what it looks like how it feels and how the philosophy of sgi nitrian buddhism which is based on the practice of chanting nam myoho renge kyo can be used to bring it out i'm your host jihi jolly so today our guests are jazz legends wayne shorter and esperanza spalding and i'm so excited for you to hear what they had to say Creating music, and especially jazz, is such a perfect example of the challenge of bringing out what's inside of you in a way that can really heal, inspire, and change the world. But even if you're not a musician, the wisdom that Wayne and Esperanza share is so relevant to anyone who's struggling to be true to themselves and create a life that they're really fulfilled by. So for some context, if you're too young to really know Wayne Shorter's work, though I hope you're not, he's the legendary American jazz saxophonist and composer originally known for writing and playing with Miles Davis, Art Blakey, and an entire era of jazz musicians that define the genre. He's won 11 Grammys, including the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2008, the New York Times described him as probably jazz's greatest living small group composer. His most recent three-disc album, called Eminon, came out in 2018 with an accompanying graphic novel, and it won the Grammy that year as well. Meanwhile, Esperanza Spalding, the jazz bassist and singer known for being a musician's musician but still having incredible mass appeal, rose to fame with her Grammy win in 2010 when she unexpectedly beat out Justin Bieber for the Best New Artist. Most recently, she won the Grammy for Best Jazz Vocal Album in 2019, and last month, Rolling Stone honored her on their list of the 50 greatest bassists of all time. How did you guys both start chanting or what what made you interested in practicing SGI and Buddhism as an artist? Well, I was invited to participate in this concert and it was the first time that I had an opportunity to play with Herbie. Upon five minutes of speaking with Herbie, he asked me if I'd heard about Naimyo Renge Kyo and I said I hadn't and he gave me a card with his number on it and I was so taken aback that this immense iconic superhero was you know, sitting backstage with me talking about this chanting something. I didn't really understand what he was saying, but the card had a flower on it and it had his number. And I was like, this cannot really be Herbie Hancock's number, you know. I was so moved. At the rehearsal, we went to play Dolphin Dance. And I thought I knew that song. I really thought I knew the song. We started playing and I and I got lost in the chord changes and I didn't know where we were and and Roy Haynes was playing drums and Herbie Hancock was over there and and I just the stress started building and I just got more and more and more lost and I just was hanging on for dear life and we finished the sound check and I was mortified especially after Herbie had just given me his phone number you know I'm like oh no this is the worst and 
I went backstage and I said, you know, Mr. Hancock, I call him Herbie now because I, I consider us friends, but I said, Mr. Hancock, you know, I just, I want to apologize. I'm going to go now and learn all those chord changes. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he was like, what? That was fun. We were, we was, we were listening. Like, that was great. Like, he was like, that was awesome. He's like, let's do that tonight. <laughs> um, and that opening and that sense of just connection with this person, I think is what um, made me follow up with the card that he gave me, you know? And then, honestly, when I first started practicing, I was practicing because I admire Wayne so much and I admire Herbie so much and I had grown to love his wife, Carolina, and they were so shiny as human beings and so convinced uh, of the power of this practice. So I just started practicing it in a way out of respect for them and a way to like feel woven into something that was important to people who I wanted to be like family. Actually, a few years ago, Herbie Wayne and Daisaku Ikeda published a book together called Reaching Beyond Improvisations on Jazz, Buddhism, and a Joyful Life, where they reflect both on their practice and their career. But um, first, Wayne, can you tell us how you started practicing Buddhism or, or why? Oh, I had a daughter, young daughter. She passed away now, but uh, she had uh, brain damage. And that's when I was uh, um, 40 years old. She had brain damage. And uh, it was my wife at that time. She passed away too. And I saw her putting up something on the wall one night. And then she started that a little book and started saying some words. She did that also at Herbie Hancock's house one time. And then... uh, what she said to me was, I'm trying to find out about this philosophy for our daughter's sake. So for our daughter's sake, for someone else's sake, that's, that's the first, that's the, uh, what ignited my uh, attention to. I said to ask her to move over and show me what you're doing. And I started trying to say the sutra for the sake of my my daughter's life condition that she had uh, meaning brain damage. For me to discover not just why she had it, but what were we going to do? How do you proceed? And with this kind of, you know, people have many kinds of um, resistance, obstacles, or and scars or the the dynamite thrown in your path and all that. Hmm. So what changed when you started chanting? A deeper purpose started to infiltrate my thoughts and all that. A deeper purpose. And it was deeper than just playing music. And deeper just than just being another band leader, a group. And then it was always much deeper than um, making hit records and getting going to the bank every other week. <laughs> well, you know, doing your stuff online now, and getting your money online. It was much deeper than that. So that's it in a in a 
something that's bigger than a, a nutshell, and, uh, a bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that makes, uh, thank you for sharing. So, um, like after you started chanting as an artist, how did a daily practice of chanting impact you? In the beginning, here, here's something funny happened. It was difficult for me to actually sit down and compose something. I kind of dropped out of writing music. I would just show up play the concert, uh, maybe jot down a few little notes for the next rehearsal, for the next recording. But I usually I'd, we had songs ready and, and, and compositions and all that. And I, I didn't, I didn't, and I'm thinking, is this, is this what's happening? Like the practice is, is uh, enabling me to see something I'm not doing in art. But I had it the other way. It was something I wasn't doing in life. I told myself, I don't know anything. Because when I was 40, when you're 40 years old, you think, I got it together. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. I know, I got my own philosophy. And this is when the everything got shattered within my thought process and it was difficult to write a song or music or compositions really difficult and that's the time uh esperanza when uh i wrote somewhere around the three marias a piece of music called the three marias uh so so then what i'm saying is that this practice may affect a person's profession in strange ways, different ways. It's not the same. It's not, not goody, goody, good, man. Uh, as soon as I started practicing, I got super rich. <laughs> I got hit. I wrote hit songs. I did, 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 did. No, with me, it was a struggle to get more to something called not just honesty, but um, authentic. And uh, the, the authenticism would take longer to move an audience than the top heavy, superficial, light coated when you um, wow the audience with, with something that's uh, very commercial and commer accessible. Something that's recognizable, yeah. And, and so I was thinking about not just musicians, but lawyers, what are they doing? And when I went to meetings, I heard other people talking about how the practice affected their profession. Every now and then, I hear something like what I, I, was, I went through. Someone would say, I couldn't, I couldn't do what I thought I was going to do. And I had to rethink, redo, reprocess everything I thought about directing a motion picture, like the director would talk like that. And after six months of practicing, I found out what I was doing. Uh, 
it was my arrogance or my this, you know. So, I'm, so I'm saying that this practice, it says, does it tell you if you're going to be, are you, are you overloading with arrogance or looking at the world through rose-colored glasses? Are, are you, are you, are you mainly do the Pollyanna thing in your life? Does the Pollyanna thing take over? You know what I mean? I'm just so moved um, hearing everything you're sharing, Wayne. <laughs> it's just, yeah, the authenticity piece. Um, it makes me think again of that willingness to look honestly, you know, even just setting that intention stepping into a practice, whatever it is, or stepping into a group meeting, if it's about a project, um, or into your practice, if you're a musician, like being willing to to approach what you're working with honestly, and, and be willing to see what can be revealed in that practice. I think that connects to the metaphor of polishing the mirror, right? And the Gohonsen representing or being of many things, a mirror to address ourselves. Um, and I think that can be the challenging thing about being a creator and bringing the creative process. I have something funny to tell you. What? A, fra a phrase. What? I heard this phrase a long time ago that someone said, an artist, an artist who's really looking for all kinds of great stuff has to learn how to, I'm going to start with how to learn how to steal from themselves. <laughs> yeah, and that's I mean, yeah. At the end of the at the beginning, middle, and end of the day, what we are struggling with is ours. Even if it's a dynamic. Well, I'm going to rephrase that. I mean, I think there are ways that people in captivity, you know, people who are in very extreme situations of injustice and oppression, it's not that they're responsible for the forces being imposed on them. Um, I, but I think even if this tool is true, then even in contexts like that, there there is some mode of liberation and transformation possible, even in those dire situations. But I'll say in, in this environment, in my life, with the privileges and liberties, struggle, resistance, challenges, roadblocks in the creative process, 10 times out of 10 are originating from something that, I, that is in here, you know? And it's not about taking responsibility for other people's behavior or, you know, other challenges that happen or scheduling or budgets or whatever. But what has happened time and time and time and time again when I really go like, ah, oh, how am I gonna get through this? Like, what am I missing? Like, what is wrong? And go to the Gohonsen and chant. And you know, everyone's experience in that personal space is different, even when you're in a room with 200 people. So it's not, I don't wanna like, even pretend to narrate what the process of this practice is. It's as varied as the people who practice it. But for me, I'll, I'll, it's like when, when Wayne just said, I, he learned what he was doing. He learned what was in the way. It's a learning. And I'll learn in that space in front of the Gohonsen or wherever I am chanting. 
Because it's a commitment to be honest. It's a commitment to look honesty. Honestly, that's what you're asking for, right? When you go to the homes, go homes and you're going like, oh, please, somebody fix this. It's, you're making a commitment to see what can be seen, what can be learned so that one can adjust and respond. And 10 times out of 10, that little... That little key will turn like, ooh, ah, right, because ah, uh, mm, mm, uh, huh, huh. And even if that's not the the ultimate or penultimate quote unquote solution or response, then it gets you to the further enough along for you to see the next one. And I think even that humility of understanding that there is no silver bullet, like the silver bullet is the willingness to accept there's no silver bullet. <laughs> um. Or if there is a silver bullet, it's your responsibility to go collect the silver and forge it and shape it and, and build the device that you're going to use to make a projectile. And it's all like your capacity to be honesty, honest. Like every single one of those elements distilled down to some other function of honesty and willingness to, to see. And then the willingness to take what is learned and incorporate it and embody it. To however we can at that moment of our evolution, you know, human, human revolution slash evolution. If we are truly looking with honesty and trusting that whatever the circumstances, therein lies the value creating opportunity, then we can, we can face anything and embrace anything. When you say, does this practice affect my work in, in music? Every now and then, when I go on a stage, and we, we were trying to break through, do new things in music, and we wanted to sometimes show off. We, I say, we want to show off to the world this new stuff we're writing and playing, a new breakthrough and everything like that. And I had to always check myself sometimes, and I say, with an, instead of trying to impress the audience with what you're playing only, only, Remember this, they're mostly going to remember your behavior. Mm. And the stuff that you want them to, to have will come along a little later. It'll st it maybe it'll stay, you know. But you, you can wipe it out with mm. your behavior, your behavior. You mm. can wipe out what you want them to have with your behavior if you don't watch mm. it. Mm. What about you, Esperanza? Mm. I really, I just really appreciate this opportunity to hear Wayne speak about this and to be in conversation with y'all, to have this opportunity to, yeah, think about these and reflect on these aspects of our lives. Um, I think about, I was thinking about the generosity and capacity of a person who's, you know, like, um, let's say a band leader, like a big band director, that they're arranging for the big band, they're directing the big band, they're booking the big band, they're hiring the musicians, they're keeping peace among the people in the group. And, and with the way they behave, like Wayne says, you know, setting a model for how one can do this. And I think, um, or like think of a dance company, right? Like a, a Pina Bausch, someone. We were just talking about this earlier today. Well, right? I think... Um, inherent in that dynamic even if everybody's the same age and have been dancing for the same amount of time even in a place like that there is a mentor and discipleship role because a person who's deep in a practice 
is who has a capacity to embody that practice is saying, as I'm inviting you into this vision, I'm showing you what's possible. It's like, if I, it's like Kendrick Lamar says, if I got it, then you know you got it. And if they don't, just like being a dancer with Pina Bausch, what it invites is the, is the development and the unlocking of all of these facets of your own dancing capacity. And through that, you'll discover things on your own that you then take into other contexts. All of it is polishing, you know, polishing in the practice of continually peeling away the layers to get to the authentic self and let that part actually be learning in the world instead of the layers of ego learning in the world, right? Esperanza is known for sporting a jumpsuit that says life force on it, which in Buddhism is the force that manifests when we chant nam myoho renge kyo and in a sense powers our Buddhahood enlightenment or Buddhability. You can hear it in the way she talks about leadership and artistry, but what's most amazing is how she carries it and creates work that's entirely her own. Here's how NPR describes it. The ways in which Spalding's music are truly the most radical are perhaps the most easily overlooked. How her approach to singing and the substance of her playing challenge gender norms across styles. Spalding doesn't sing torch songs and rarely writes of romance. She doesn't attempt to reel in her audiences with flirtation. She chooses not to perform desire or longing, themes that fuel the most deeply held stereotypes of jazz women as singers who simply emote rather than perform with technical skill. That Spalding can sing with power and spirit while refusing to operate from a place of emotional want represents an enormous psychic shift within jazz, bringing the music in line with contemporary women's values. So before Esperanza has to leave, is there anything you'd like to share about your own relationship? Relationship? Yeah, you and me, Wayne. Wayne and me. You and me. Oh. I mean, we. Yeah. We. That is way more than you and me, but the... Yeah, we are um, breaking through something. We're working on a, not just one thing, but we, we are, the relationship that we we have is... is it's like yet to be seen. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Dot, dot, dot. Wayne and Esperanza have an opera premiering next year that is called Iphigenia, based on the ancient story. I'll read you this tiny bit from the description, which says a group of powerful men tell a woman that she must make an enormous sacrifice in order to serve the greater good. It's a story that has plagued civilization since the beginning of time. Shorter and Spalding's operatic meditation deconstructs and reframes Euripides' original play, creating an experience that seeks to break the pattern of stories, stories about race, gender, and relationships that we've been told can never change. So this has been amazing. I know, Wayne, we only have time for one more question. Um, so, you know, given everything that you have both said, it really sounds like it takes so much courage to deal with the things that make us feel like we can't do what we want to do. So, you know, based on your years of practice, um, what would you say to a young person who's struggling with uh, creating or breaking through something that's really making them feel stuck? The only thing I can say like, is never, 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 never give up. And whatever the resistances you may encounter, it may be a same resistance 
or something, a resistance in disguise. It's the same, but it's in disguise as something else. Just kind of think of the, re the resistance is a teacher. And you must, what do you do with a teacher? You learn from a teacher. Or let's put it this way, you got to maybe see, get a picture. I guess we've all heard this one. I mean, people who have been practicing quite a while, they hear it. But it's a good reminder that an airplane, an airplane cannot take off without resistance. The resistor is a teacher for the resistee. This is where your daimoku will lead you to creative ways to understand what the teacher is talking about. That teacher you don't like. <laughs> the job you're trying to get, or whatever, breakthrough. Recently, in an interview with the New York Times, Wayne was asked the question, um, I like that the protagonist in Eminon is a rogue philosopher, because that's how I think of you. How did music become a canvas for such a broad philosophical inquiry for you? And this was his answer. I think that music opens portals and doorways into unknown sectors that it takes courage to leap into. I always think that there's a potential that we all have, and we can emerge, rise up to this potential when necessary. We have to be fearless, courageous, and draw upon wisdom that we think we don't have. Which really made me think about this ability that we're talking about that we all have and the fact that it's always been inside of us. We just tend to forget about it, especially at crucial moments, whether career-related or family or simply grappling with our identity. And we need a way to remember it and to find it again. So I wanted to share one Buddhist passage with you to close, which is from a letter by 13th century Buddhist reformer Nichiren Daishonin. He writes, Tiantai states, by observing the fury of the rain, we can tell the greatness of the dragon that caused it, and by observing the flourishing of the lotus flowers, we can tell the depth of the pond they grew in. When the skies are clear, the ground is illuminated. Similarly, when one knows the Lotus Sutra, one understands the meaning of all worldly affairs. In other words, when we know about our great potential, we can see the things in front of us, messy as they may be, for what they really are, which is the spark to awaken our Buddhability. And that's it for Buddhability Today. We will see you next week. 